I've said it before, I'll say it again. Everything that we face today, somehow, one way or another, involves China. And we've talked about how it impacts our economy. We've talked about how it impacts our health. You know, one area that it especially impacts is our nation's security. And one of the real recent threats, just a revelation of the threat, happened uh, earlier this year when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, uh, was in conversation with his Chinese counterpart. Good news, we have uh, Frank Gaffney, national security expert, good friend of the Economic War Room, and Gordon Chang, uh, China expert, Ash, actually also a national security expert. And we're gonna talk about where we stand vis-a-vis -vis China. Milley said, hey, you know, we're, we're not as crazy as we appear, we're not gonna start a war. But what did the Chinese perceive? And was that legitimate? Let's turn first to Frank. I think they probably were flummoxed by what he seemed to have said. Now, again, we're going on the basis at this moment, at least, of a report of what he supposedly said by people who are not entirely trustworthy, Bob Woodward and Bob Costa. But let's say for the purposes of discussion that something approximate. There does seem to be some validations said, that have come out. There's not been a denial. Right. As of the time we're having this conversation, there's not been a direct denial. And indeed, the spokesperson for General Milley has acknowledged that he did have conversations and they were trying to prevent misunderstanding and uh, you know, repercussions that would be untoward. The point is, what he specifically is alleged to have said, I think would have mystified the Chinese because it, it is inconceivable that any military person, worth his salt at least, would say, if we're going to attack you, I'm going to call you in advance and let you know we're going to do it. Yeah, that's insane. Uh, I mean, it's professionally malfeasant, for one thing. Right. It assures that you will have your personnel murdered going into whatever attack is on. To say nothing of the preemption that almost certainly would be invited by it against the homeland of the United States. So I think the Chinese would be mystified by it, uh, probably not credit it, but I know Gordon's got a theory about what else might have prompted, uh, been prompted by it. Well, let's hear it, Gordon. What, what do you think? Two things. First of all, um, the Chinese believe we're in political disarray anyway. This would have confirmed it. This means that the Chinese would have been emboldened because they think that the U.S. is not in a position to respond to a Chinese initiative, whether we're talking Taiwan, Japan, India, whatever. So I think it made the world more dangerous because it gives the Chinese an incentive now um, to actually act more belligerently. Also, remember that General Milley said, uh, you know, we're not going to attack you. And so the Chinese must have been thinking, well, why would he say that? Um, and so this whole issue, you know, as we've learned from Woodward's book, that um, Milley believed that the Chinese believed that Trump was going to attack them. Well, there are no objective indications that's the case. There are no unusual movement of Chinese forces. There are no unusual civilian preparations. And there was nothing in the propaganda. This means that uh, when you're General Lee thinking on the other end of the phone call, you're saying, well, if they think that, there must be a spy in Beijing or in the People's Liberation Army or whatever. I'm sure right now they're on an intensified spy hunt. So that's the second implication of this. 
Well, my concern is, is that we should be on an intensified spy hunt just because the influence operation is so sufficient to get to the chairman that he would care more what the Chinese think than what the president thinks. Well, he was actually so contemptuous of what the president thought as to be insubordinate and I think acting unconstitutionally as well. And this is one of the reasons why, based on what we know right now, it certainly seems to me at a minimum an investigation of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is in order, if not his court-martial. You know, the term that I hear tossed around is not insubordinate. It's treason. It's well, treason. I think it that's treason. If validated, I think it rises to that. And the defense, right. here's the other problem, is the defense of this by the far left as, oh, no, this is acceptable. That's insane that any elected politician would feel that this was acceptable. What happens if they do, what happens if Milley were to decide or some former chairman were to decide that the president was incompetent, Uh, you know, and and with given Biden's age and some of the press conferences he's had and how they cut him off, it's not hard to imagine. What happens then? We have a constitutional procedure. It's the 25th Amendment. If Milley actually thought that President Trump was of a state of mind, which he describes, he should have been calling the Vice President of the United States to invoke the 25th Amendment. What he did was um, he just changed the, changed, uh, the, the chain of command. Um, this is not only insubordination. I mean, this is, uh, this is in a sense, a coup. It is. And, and, you know, one particular piece of this, which I don't think has gotten the attention that it warrants, is according, again, to Woodward and Costa, Milley engaged directly with his subordinates to extract from them what he considered to be an oath, which basically amounted to a loyalty oath to him, putting him not only in the chain of command, but into an unconstitutional arrangement. It superseded the oath that they all took, all of those officers, every single one of them, to support and defend the Constitution. Yeah, it made him the commander-in-chief. In effect, it did. And what's the word for that? When, when military officers uh, agree by oath to go against the wishes of the commander-in-chief, what do you call that? That's a coup. It really is. Gordon, you've written recently, I've got a one, you you write in Epic Times uh, and and other places. You've got a a wonderful article here. I want to see if I can find it. Uh, Xi Jinping is mobilizing China for war, possibly with nukes. I want to talk about that a little bit more in the second portion of this program. But when you when you described they weren't prepared for a war footing, they weren't changing things in January when Milley was agreeing to this. I want to know, have they changed that since? Yeah. We know, for instance, talking about January, um, January 1st, uh, new amendments to their laws um, give the uh, Central Military Commission of the Communist Party uh, increased control over civilian matters. This is mobilization for war, which would normally, before the amendment, um, would be in the hands of the state council, which is essentially the Chinese central government. Um, so they're thinking along these lines. But as Frank has been talking about so much, you know, we have seen these three new missile fields where they're building maybe 345 silos for their DF-41 missile, which can reach the United States, any part of the U.S., and which is MIRV, uh, 10 warheads per missile. 
Um, but what we're seeing is Xi Jinping on the propaganda front laying the justification for war with the United States. So, for instance, in August, they're talking about the United States committing, quote-unquote, barbaric acts against China. They're also in one millimeter from calling the U.S. a, quote-unquote, enemy. And in May 2019, they actually declared a, quote-unquote, people's war on us. So they're warning us. They're telegraphing their punches, as the late great ambassador James Lilly said. The Chinese always telegraph their punches. And that's what they're doing right now. And they are mobilizing their society for conflict with the U.S. Well, we're going to need to take a break, but I want to pick that up uh, in the second segment. So uh, let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Frank, it looks, um, as Gordon shared, it looks like they're preparing for a war footing in China. Uh, what are your thoughts? I think they're on a war footing. It looks as though they're preparing to go into the next phase. But I, I just wanted to clarify one thing that uh, has come up, and that is, will we be able to discern that they're ready to go actually against Taiwan, perhaps, or against us? And I think what's beginning to manifest is they're purposefully reducing what we call indicators and warnings because it's kind of steady state. They're having large numbers of personnel who are in proximity to Taiwan, for example. They've got amphibious lift, they've got airlift assets that don't necessarily need now to be mobilized in order to be pretty much ready to go. And then on the nuclear side, Gordon's absolutely right, we're, I think, all been somewhat stunned to discover just in the past couple of weeks that these missile silos for immensely powerful missiles are sprouting up like mushrooms after the rain. But the question to my mind is, how many of those DF-41s are running around in the 3,000 miles of hardened underground tunnels mm. that the Chinese have been operating now for some years? We don't know the answer. Where they are, how ready they are, are they, you know, good to go? I think our assumption has to be they are. And if so, the warnings, the mobilization, the kind of things that would give us some uh, higher reason to be on alert um, are going to be much diminished. So all of that is very worrying if you're talking about the war footing that they've been putting uh, forward and making all the more important Gordon's point that the propaganda, that the information that they are disseminating to their own people as well as to the rest of the world is perhaps the most important indicator that we are actually likely to have at this point and it's in full offensive Display. mode. Right. And one of the things, Gordon, I want to ask you is, is we're seeing the very famous Chinese celebrities, uh, the billionaires that the Communist Party set up, you know, disappearing, you know, being scrubbed from the Internet. And we're seeing uh, just strong statements of what a communist nation we are. Uh, is this war footing because they think that we're weak and it's time, you know, so they could take Taiwan, or is it because they're internally, you've warned about the weakness internally in China for, for years, is it because their economy is imploding internally and, and they're having to take a strong stance, or is it both? 
I think there are a number of things going on. It's hard to tell because China's becoming less and less visible to us as time progresses. But my sense is that what Xi Jinping is doing is he is in a struggle with other senior Communist Party leaders. You remember Mao Zedong in 1966. He was pretty much on the outs. And what he did was he tried to mobilize the Chinese people against those in Beijing who had taken his power from him. That started the Cultural Revolution, 10 years of the most abnormal period in Chinese history, um, almost destroyed China. Um, Xi Jinping, this is not the Cultural Revolution right now, but we're starting to see parallels today about uh, how Xi Jinping is mobilizing Chinese society against his political enemies. It's very much what Mao Zedong did. We know that Xi actually reveres Mao, and so we shouldn't be surprised he's taking this out of his playbook. So, for instance, we have this attack on, on celebrities you talk about, on effeminate men, um, which is a big part of it, on gay, um, on the Me Too movement. It is just comprehensive. And at the same time, Kevin, Xi Jinping is closing Chinese society off to the, from the world. So there's an attack on foreigners, which is a main part now of his propaganda. Um, so these are occurring in tandem, and it suggests that there are turmoil at the top of the Communist Party. We know about the problems, the debt crisis, which is hitting China right now. And we know that Xi Jinping is being blamed for a lot of this because these are his policies that are producing bad results for Beijing. So you, you put it all together, you've got to worry that Xi Jinping just figures he might lash out. Just um, a couple other things. He's reduced the cost. He, he, his predecessors reduced the cost of losing political struggles. Xi Jinping has raised it. Also, Xi Jinping took a consensual political system where nobody got too much credit, nobody got too much blame, and he's grabbed power from everybody. So he has total accountability. You put those two things together, Xi Jinping realizes if he's going to be blamed, he might die. He might lose his life. So he might as well just roll the dice and attack Taiwan or, or try to go after the U.S. Navy or whatever. But the point is right now, Xi Jinping has a very low threshold of risk, which means he can take us by surprise. Yeah, that's scary. And the implications globally are scary because the power that uh, China can influence through... When Mao Zedong was going through his problems in 1966, he didn't have the power to attack his neighbors or the United States or the international system. You're absolutely right. Xi Jinping has that power now to mobilize China's military to attack the world to solve his own political problems. And it's called social engineering. It's a, right out of the playbook of totalitarians of all stripes. When they get in trouble at home, they are not infrequently going to lash out externally. You know a lot more about this than I do, Kevin, but in addition to this list of horribles, um, one of the things that is pretty stunning is the attack by Xi on the capital markets. Oh, wow. Yes. And the cost that that is inflicting, not just on American investors, by some estimates I've been told, it's something like a half a trillion dollars, but on the Chinese people as well. And it's a question that I don't know the answer to. Does he know what he's doing? Is this part of sort of the, the locking down of everything so he's in total control? Or is it just uh, sort of now out of control and creating new dynamics which will further intensify the likelihood that he has to behave badly? Well, when you have George Soros yeah. 
calling out the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, it's really, really bad. And not only that, as, as you know, Frank, calling out Larry Fink mm -hmm. for promoting ESG and all this goodness and cultural things at home while supporting an attack on effeminate men and homosexuality and women's rights and all of the things that they're doing. It, it really is. There's a lot of economic implications, and this is economic war room. Uh, we're going to have to take another break. But when we come back, I want to talk about the economic implications, uh, the stock market, the bond market, uh, where China's economy is heading. And if we went into a war, what would that do? As stock market, that's one of those exogenous impacts. If, if we go into a war, it's going to impact the stock market, maybe in ways it's never done before. So we'll take another break and we'll be right back. So, Gordon and Frank, we face a very real prospect. We've been in a kind of a cold war, an unrestricted war, economic war. We face a very real prospect of a hot war or just even more intensified unrestricted warfare. How will that impact the economy, Gordon? That's a great question, and I guess the answer is we don't know. Um, one thing I think we can say, though, is China is probably going to have less of an effect than we think. We think they're going to take over the world and everything. But we got to remember that China is grew, um, and, and they, they grow, yes. Um, and people say, well, they contribute X percentage of global growth. And if China were to have problems, which they obviously would if we were to have a war, um, that would affect global growth. It, yes, but we got to remember, though, that China takes growth away from other countries because through predatory practices, through theft. Um, so if China were to disappear, we would have more growth in other parts of the world. The real engine of global growth is the United States because to be an engine of global growth, you've got to buy the goods and services of other countries to create growth elsewhere. Mm -hmm. That's the United States with our big deficits. Um, so. Obviously, if there were to be a disruption, any disruption, especially one with China, um, that would affect our ability to buy goods and services elsewhere. That's where the real effect would be. Um, with China, um, China, um, and this is the thing that bothers me, and that is that we talk about an invasion of Taiwan. They probably would escalate to nuclear weapons very quickly. And of course, the shock on the financial markets and economies around the world just would be devastating. So it's the psychological psychological impact that we're talking about, not so much, you know, the economic the economics of it. If we could divorce economics from psychology, which we can of course, but it's going to be that psychological impact. Well, that's what concerns me is uh, looking at the stock market, and I've studied that my whole career, uh, the market's elevated, and it's, it's elevated relative to the actual economic value. Uh, Warren Buffett will tell you that, or you can look at any number of historical measures. Uh, when you break that psychology, it can be very, very painful. And if uh, investors wake up, and they've been told by Wall Street for 20 years, the future is all China, and then all of a sudden you have this mental dislocation and psychological impact, it can be devastating. So, Frank, we talked a minute ago about uh, Larry Fink and BlackRock and George Soros. Did you have a comment on that? Yeah, I personally think that Larry Fink um, is uh, a very dangerous individual in the present moment. Uh, there is a concentration of power in his hands, and I'm not talking just about the 10 trillion dollars that I understand his firm BlackRock, yeah, BlackRock now has under management. Huge, yeah. 
I'm talking about the degree to which he has translated that kind of money into ownership of all kinds of other companies and is now, as you know better than anybody, Kevin, bending corporate America in this so-called woke direction towards basically pursuing his agenda, the so-called ESG, Environment, Social Justice Governance Agenda, without regard for the shareholder implications of that. The stakeholders are now uber alles. And that means, I'm afraid, not only this hypocrisy, which George Soros actually pointed out, between that agenda here and what he's doing in China, which doesn't give a fig about E, S, or G, needless to say. Right. But I just want to come back to one thing that, that um, makes this all the more compelling a problem, I think, whether it's the financial piece of it, the, the think agenda, what have you. And that is, uh, Gordon mentioned, you know, China going nuclear in the event of some sort of conflict. I, I, you've done brilliant work, let me just say, uh, Gordon, about what I think is actually the more likely response. They don't want to destroy this country. They want to inherit it. And if you can take down the people of this country and leave basically the rest of it more or less intact, that's a lot better than blowing it up, which makes it a lot less habitable and uh, valuable. So when you look at biological weapons, including those, as you pointed out, Gordon, that their doctrine calls for targeting to certain ethnicities, when you look at electromagnetic pulse, and Kevin, you've done fabulous work on that over the years, uh, when you look at, um, you know, buying up our agricultural productive land, I mean, I'm told there's something like 30 million acres that are now owned by the Chinese. All of this suggests that they're moving in the direction of depopulating this country so that it can be colonized by the Chinese. And that, in fact, we have a, a Xi Haochen, I believe it was, former defense minister of China, saying back in the early 2000s, that is the plan that Deng Xiaoping, who started up their biological weapons program, had in mind for us. So this is a moment of just surpassing danger, it seems to me, and I'm so grateful for the two of you and the work that you do in calling attention to this and, and hopefully equipping our people to understand how we better be on a war footing, too. Well, we hopefully to deter. Anyway. We certainly haven't been. I mean, here, here's a May 21st article from uh, CNBC. Overseas investors are snapping up mainland China bonds. Here's another one. Uh, this was, uh, uh, and that's just found money. That's for, completely discretionary yeah, for spending. For the first for time ever, China is seeking foreign buyers for its municipal bonds. That's last year. In a surprise spate of bond defaults by state-owned Chinese farm. farm firms is spooking investors shortly after. So they were sucking our money in, and then they started defaulting, and now we've got uh, uh, this, well, this is the Evergrande, Global, uh, yeah, uh, Evergrande fiasco. I, I think they've been uh, pulling a bait and switch on us for 20 years, and now the switch is here. Right. Your thoughts, Gordon? Yeah. It's a communist system, so basically they need new money. And uh, they especially need new money now because you have a number of state institutions which are in trouble. Walrong Asset Management um, basically would be would have failed were it not for Beijing's rescue. You got Evergrande with 305 billion dollars in liabilities, 
and you've got a lot of other Evergrands out there, um, which means that Beijing right now has got its back against the wall and it's been trying to get Larry Fink's money, for instance. Um, but well, we've also our, our money via our money, Larry Fink. Our, our, uh, yeah, our money accurate. via Larry Fink, and, and also um, and through a number of other ways. Um, but I think the and most people in the financial community these days are now very wary, and we see disinvestment. Um, people getting out and running from China as fast as they can, and they can't run fast enough because I don't think that they understood the depth of the problems there. China was able to keep Evergrande going through a number of ways, always reported profits, um, never been unprofitable, um, but yet it is debt-ridden and an inability to pay back its obligations. And this is true for a lot of others. China is trying right now to spread the pain so it doesn't look so obvious what's going on, but it has a debt crisis. And it's from 2008 onwards, they've been postponing this debt crisis, and now they're having their 2008. Yeah, well, the history of the financial markets is you spread the pain for only so long and then everything collapses, mm -hmm. and that's the risk. And I really appreciate you both being here. I mean, the reality of it is we're in an economic war. We've been in an economic war uh, for several decades with China. Wall Street sold us down that river and pro-China, pro-China, pro-China. The smart people on Wall Street are getting out, uh, except for like the Larry Finks, who continues to push the line and take our money invested through his index funds and then vote the shares uh, against our values. This is why you need a financial advisor that's been trained by the National Security Investment Consultant Institute, NSIC Institute. And you can learn all about that in our free economic battle plan. You can download a copy at economicwarroom.com. It's your money. Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. It's time for us to recognize the truth and get in the fight. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room.